Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, I'm going to chat with the space physicist Xiaojia Zhang about how satellites have been used to discover a river of high-speed electrons that are flowing towards Earth. And we also find out about the latest meteorite that may have landed in the English countryside. But first, we look at what's new in the world of computational nanotechnology. Scientists in China have come up with a new computational model for describing how chain-like nitrogen molecules, called polymeric nitrogen, can exist within carbon nanotubes. Such molecules could form the basis of new high-energy density materials. And to talk about this work, I'm joined down the line by Heba Magad, who is a PhD student contributor to Physics World and is part of the Responsive Polymer and Solution Processed Nanophotonics Group at the University of Genoa in Italy. Hi, Heba. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Hamish. Thank you for having me. Now, Heba, you've written an article for Physics World about this research, and I should say that the research was done by a team of scientists led by Jan Sun at Nanjing University. So why, why are these scientists interested in creating stable chains of polymeric nitrogen? So generally, nitrogen compounds like TNT, for example, or nitroglycerin are known to be very good explosives because when you break the bonds between the nitrogen and other atoms, you give a chance for nitrogen atoms to bond to each other, um, making very strong nitrogen-nitrogen triple bond, which is uh, really strong. And in this process, they release a lot of energy. So the scientists think that by making long chains of nitrogen atoms linked to each other, then you have an enormous amount of energy in a limited space. So you have high energy density. And in this case, they can be used as propellants or explosives. And the nice thing about them is that they release only uh, nitrogen gas when they explode, uh, which is safe. It basically makes up most of our atmosphere. And so the, these researchers in China, they're interested in, in creating these stable chains of nitrogen inside carbon nanotubes. Why do carbon nanotubes offer a solution to, 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 to a way of making these, these changes? Is it simply because carbon nanotubes are sort of long and thin as well? Basically, carbon nanotubes are these tubes, let's say, made of a rolled sheet of um, carbon. And in this case, it's graphene. And they make um, a cylinder that can fit inside um, molecules of smaller dimensions, so like the nitrogen um, compounds. And in this case, they stabilize um, the, these compounds because they isolate them from whatever is outside of the carbon nanotube. And also the potential inside the carbon nanotube helps stabilize these compounds. So it has been done before for different kinds of chains like carbon chains or phosphorus chains. So it's a promising system when it comes to stabilizing these kinds of compounds. And the study that you wrote about, it's a, a sort of a theoretical and, and computational study. How, how did the researchers use computational techniques to predict structures that would be stable inside carbon nanotubes? So they use first a really fundamental physics concept to 
um, model the energy potential inside the carbon nanotube and then use a machine learning software to really go through all the different uh, possible um, structures that can form inside. And then um, they can use that machine learning software to isolate and really see uh, if any structures of this polymeric nitrogen can be stabilized inside carbon nanotube. And then uh, they use further models to really understand the properties of these uh, materials, such as their electronic properties or mechanical stability, for example. So in theory, they, they've predicted um, that these molecules could be uh, created and I suppose stored inside carbon nanotubes. But, but I understand that it could be tricky to make these in the lab. How, how, how could it be done? Well, yeah, they've seen that these uh, molecules could be actually formed and they can be uh, really have a really strong energy density. So it's two times higher than TNT. So really promising for experimental scientists to work on. And yeah, they were inspired by previous research. And then they said, OK, maybe starting with uh, some um, sodium nitrogen compounds such as sodium azide and then mixing it with the carbon nanotube under some pressure uh, with nitrogen gas and argon gas, which are uh, stable and inert, uh, and then heating them with a laser beam, it can really uh, get the reaction started and maybe it will be a pathway to making these reactions in the lab. You can read Habba's article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Carbon Nanotubes Could Stabilize Energy-Rich Nitrogen Chains. Thanks for being on the podcast, Habba, and thanks for writing the article for Physics World. Space surrounding the Earth is anything but benign. And recently, researchers using observations made by satellites have discovered a new source of super-fast energetic electrons that are raining down on Earth. I'm joined down the line from the University of California, Los Angeles, by Xiao Jia Zhang, who is lead author on a paper that describes this electron rain. Hi, Xiao Jia. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Thank you for having me here. Oh, no problem. This is some really interesting research that you've done, and uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to chatting about it. So th this electron rain is associated with the Van Allen radiation belts that circle the Earth. What are these belts, and, and why are you and other scientists so keen on studying them? Let me just briefly introduce uh, what are violent radiation belts. They are actually uh, two donut-shaped zones surrounding the Earth, as we commonly know. Uh, but what we may not know is that they are occupied by very high-energy electrons and protons trapped by our own internal magnetic field of the Earth. Uh, it comes with two belts. One inner belt located at about uh, uh, 2,000 to 10,000 kilometers from the Earth's surface. Uh, it is re relatively stable, uh, but the outer belt, uh, which is further away from the Earth, about 20 to 40,000 kilometers away from the surface, uh, it constantly swells and shrinks in response to the activities inside the magnetosphere. So the radiation belts were observed for the first time in uh, 1958 
by the first uh, NASA mission, Explorer 1. This discovery also uh, actually marks the start of the space era or the start of space physics uh, as an observational subject. The reason that the radiation belts are heavily studied uh, is that they threaten the safety of man-made satellites and astronauts. Uh, because of the wide range of the outer radiation belt in space, uh, more than eight, uh, 800 satellites or communication for communication and navigation operate uh, in this radiation belt region, and uh, so that they are subjected to the damaging effects of these highly energetic particles within the radiation belt. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we are studying the radiation belts intensively. Uh, in addition, that the radiation uh, damage directly from these particles uh, pose hazards to the astronauts uh, in a very direct way. Uh, that's also another reason uh, that scientists are motivated to, to get a better and better understanding of these radiation belts. And so more specifically on the energetic particle dynamics inside of it. In your recent work, you discovered that electrons in the outer uh, radiation belt are sent raining down to Earth after encountering Whistler waves. W what is a Whistler wave? Yeah, Whistler waves are just a certain type or specific type of plasma waves in space. So uh, let, let's just uh, imagine this to be uh, analogous to water waves in the oceans except that it, they are made of vibrating electromagnetic fields instead of the water itself. The frequency of these waves cannot be uh, directly sensed by our ears, but when converted to audio, uh, thanks to the recent efforts in the uh, sonification, that's what they call this effort, uh, they can be heard directly uh, by, our, by our ears, and they sound like a person whistling. That's actually why they got their names as whistler waves. Yeah, so that's part of the history for these waves. And, 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 and how, how does this acceleration process occur? I mean, is it as simple as electrons surfing on these waves towards Earth? Uh, yeah, it's similar so that uh, uh, when the electrons are at a certain speed relative to the waves, so that they are constant, uh, they are seeing, they are basically relatively stable with each with respect to each other, so that they can constantly gaining or losing energy between them, so that uh, in certain conditions the waves are transporting the energy towards the particles, so that to get them accelerated and then showering down the earth. And 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 so, what sort of energies are these? Um, are, are these do these electrons have? The energy of the electrons after being accelerated and then ended uh, at the Earth's atmosphere can be on the order of tens of kilo electron volt to uh, hundreds of kilo electron volt. So it's really energetic, yeah. And and I suppose that's why um, they, they they can be hazardous to satellites and uh, and also to, um, to to people in space. So, so what 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 are the effects? Um, of these showers, um, do, 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 mm -hmm. do they actually affect us here on Earth? Oh yeah, yeah. So it's more, it's actually more direct uh, effect. It has more direct effects uh, on the Earth compared to the uh, astronauts or satellites in space. So these electrons that 
does rain down towards the earth, uh, that they can so that we call this electron rain. So they can have uh, both visible and invisible effects on the Earth's atmosphere, which is more close to us uh, than than somewhere in space, you know, which is further away. Uh, so one of the most obvious effects is that is those colorful auroras that we see on the ground near the polar region. Uh, so these electrons can also uh, change the properties of the atmosphere as they pour down uh, in the polar region. And uh, so they are similar. Uh, I mean, these energetic electrons, similar to those that we reported in our study, can travel deeper through the atmosphere and uh, potentially deplete the ozone layer in the mesosphere. So that, that's one of the significant effects of this uh, electron ring. And uh, more recent studies have even reported that the electron rain can change the surface air temperature, which can then further affect the atmospheric circulation. So that's one of the even long-term uh, effects of this electron rain. Wow, that, that, that's really interesting. Is that one of the reasons why the, the ozone layer is often depleted over uh, at, at high latitudes? Oh yeah, it, it it has been reported that this effect of this electron rain has a more significant uh, role in depleting the ozone layer in the polar region. You are right, uh, but like uh, compared to the overall contribution from the uh, from the from the ground, it is actually not that significant. But in the polar region, it definitely uh, raises a more significant uh, effect. And, and can this have an effect on um, on the sort of technologies that we use both uh, in space and on the ground? I'm thinking about telecommunications, GPS, even, um, I don't know, the you know, transmission of electricity. D does that come into play with, with, with this electron rain? Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, these electron rains can directly uh, affect the ionospheric properties so that it can really affect the propagation of the uh, the waves that we used for the communication or um, navigation, so that in in some some of the activities inside the magnetosphere or the ionosphere, uh, you can really experience interruptions in your navigation or uh, communication system. Yeah, so that's is one of the direct effect. And you made your observations uh, using two satellites, um, Elfin and Themis. W where are these satellites located, and and what do they measure? Yeah, we, yeah. As you said, that we use Elfin and Themis in this study specifically. Uh, so they are just the two of the uh, spacecraft missions that we launched in recent years. So Elfin is a rather small satellite. is is called a CubeSat mission. So it's UCLA's first satellite completely built and operated by students on campus. So Elfin consists of two identical satellites orbiting the Earth in a, a near circular and polar orbit uh, at a low altitude of about 400 kilometers. So each of these two satellites uh, carries an energetic electron detector for electrons so that we used in this study uh, to measure the energetic electron properties that rain down at the Earth. Uh, on the other hand, the SAMIS consists of uh, three spacecraft orbiting the Earth at highly elliptical orbits close to the equator. So with an aperture of about uh, 12 Earth radii uh, from the Earth's center, uh, and a parity of about uh, 1.2 Earth radii. 
So each of the three spacecraft carries an electric field uh, instrument and a surge coil magnetometer to measure the plasma waves in space, uh, which is used in our study here. In addition, it also carries um, particle detectors for plasma measurements, but we didn't use it actually in this study. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. So, how wh what's next? Are you going to be using these these satellites for future studies? Are you going to be no doing more studies of this electron rain, or are you moving on to another aspect of uh, of Earth radiation belts? Thank you for asking this. It actually brings up the most exciting part of this uh, of our work in general. So that definitely we will uh, continue to use data from these two valuable uh, missions. But most more interesting that we get to uh, launch new satellites to space to solve a question in our field, right? So um, this is our uh, next step actually following this work. It will be uh, a continuous effort to solve, uh, to solve the mystery of electron rain, uh, but on a slightly different topic. So we are not proposing a new CubeSat mission called Duchess uh, to solve another question, as I said about these electron rings. Where exactly is the electron ring generated along its travel path? So of course, this sounds like another uh, targeted investigation on a very specific question. Uh, but hopefully with this uh, enhanced understanding of our uh, geospace or solar system uh, as a whole, uh, accumulated by these CubeSat and small satellite observations, one day the human space travel is no longer just a fiction. So that's the, I think that's the uh, ultimate goal of our field. Wow, that sounds really interesting. I, I hope the new satellite goes well for you. Xiaojia and colleagues describe their findings in the journal Nature Communications. Their paper is called Superfast Precipitation of Energetic Electrons in the Radiation Belts of Earth, and it's open access, so you can read it for free. Thanks for being on the podcast, Xiaojia. Yeah, thank you for introducing our work, and thank you for uh, advocating space physics in general. People in the English county of Shropshire are on the lookout for a meteorite that was spotted hurtling towards Earth last week. I'm joined by my Physics World colleague Margaret Harris to talk about the search and what you should do if you find a piece of space rock. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Hamish. Now, now Shropshire is in sort of in the west of England, and didn't didn't we recently have a, a meteorite that fell on on Gloucestershire, which is also in the west of England? Um, is this a hot spot um, for for meteorites? <laughs> yeah, well, it seems like meteorites are like buses. You wait ages for one to show up, and then you get two at once. Uh, I'm told it is actually just completely random that this should happen, but sometimes random things coincidences do happen. Um, so yes, as you said, the last meteorite to strike the UK landed near Winchcombe in Gloucestershire at the end of February 2021. And the one, just to give you an idea how rare this is, or at least rare that we should find it, uh, the one before that was actually 30 years earlier in 1991. Uh, but yes, now there's been another one, and based on observations made as it passed through the sky on its descent, uh, members of the UK Fireball Alliance think that it landed somewhere south of Shrewsbury in Shropshire. Um, specifically somewhere in the region of, uh, there's some classic English village names here, Church Pulverbatch, Dorrington, and Acton Pickett. 
So, so if you happen to, to live in Acton Pigot or, or nearby, or you know someone who does, what, what the, should they be looking out for? I mean, I think the, the last time uh, a bit of meteorite was recovered, it, it famously looked like a bit of a sort of barbecue, the, the contents of somebody's barbecue that had been dumped on somebody's driveway. Is, it, is that what people should be looking out for? Well, the Fireball Alliance folks think that the meteorite weighed initially around half a kilogram, but it probably broke up into around four fragments. So you're looking for a pretty small chunk of rock, um, the size of an Easter egg or even a mini e Easter egg, and it's likely to be glossy black or brown in color. Unfortunately, that means it's also about the size and color of sheep poo, and there are a lot of sheep in Shropshire. But yes, if you're out for a walk in Shropshire, do watch out for a, a glossy uh, black or brown rock that doesn't squish like sheep poo does. And and what should you do if you find it? Um, I'm I'm guessing that that you shouldn't pick it up immediately. Uh, you should leave it where it is, so so scientists can study it in situ. Is is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's the ideal thing. The main thing, though, is just to not pick it up with your hands because the skin cells and other material on your hands can contaminate the meteorite and make it harder for scientists to find out where it came from. Um, instead, you should either leave it in place, or if that's not practical, like you think you might not be able to find it again if you left, instead, you should either leave it in place and contact the UK Fireball Alliance or the Natural History Museum, or if you can't do that, like you don't think you could find the place again or you need to do other things that day, you could use a clean piece of aluminium foil or a plastic bag, like a sandwich bag that was clean, uh, to collect it and then contact them. And the, the exciting thing is if it does turn out to have hit an object you own, like your, your driveway or your, your dog kettle, you, you could be quids in. Um, last year, the owners of a dog kennel struck by a different meteorite in Costa Rica uh, end up getting $44,000 for their dog kennel with a meteorite hole in the roof at auction. So, yeah, there's an, another incentive besides science to uh, keep a lookout for this thing. Wow. And, and, and Shropshire is a, a lovely county. And, and we've been having some, some fantastic weather here in England as of late. So I'm guessing that there's going to be lots of folks out in the countryside anyway. So, um, yeah, hopefully somebody will find this meteorite and, and pass it on to scientists and we'll learn a little bit more about, uh, about the solar system. Exactly. Thanks for being on the podcast, Margaret. Sure. Last year, we had one of the scientists involved with the recovery and study of the Gloucestershire meteorite on the podcast. Margaret chatted with Anya O'Brien of the University of Glasgow about how the researchers used a network of cameras and clever mathematics to narrow down their search area. And they also talked about the challenges of finding fragments of space rock in the field. That episode went out on the 11th of March, 2021, and is called Meteorite Hunters Find Fireball Fragments in England. You can find it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. And if you'd like to learn more about how researchers are using drones and machine learning techniques to find meteorites, there's an article on the Physics World website that describes how scientists in Australia are the first to combine these technologies to locate a space rock after an observed meteorite fall. Just look for the headline, Huge Leap, as scientists report first drone-assisted space rock recovery 
after observed meteorite fall. And that's by the science writer Will Gator. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Heba Magad, Xiaojia Zhang, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks to physicists and engineers about the latest breakthrough in fusion research and how they're working to make commercial fusion energy a reality. The episode is called Jet's Record Result and the Quest for Fusion Energy, and you can listen to it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.